Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal-making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. As always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. And, you know, we've been mentioning about what a great time it is to be in the industry and be a fan right now. And boy, howdy, these baseball playoffs have gotten off to a banner start. Absolutely. And living here in New York, I was able to watch the first game in a sports bar with a bunch of fans. So that was fun. And I think there's more fun ahead for uh, for the Yankees, hopefully. Yeah, indeed. In fact, uh, just a few hours after we taped this, I'm headed out to the stadium for game two and uh, weather is looking much better and uh, looking forward to a great afternoon. Absolutely. It will be a fun series. So a lot going on in the industry. Uh, we're going to get into uh, some interesting developments in and around athlete investment, some potential changes with March Madness and college basketball, and some continued issues for the National Women's Soccer League. But first, we're going to have a conversation with Sarab Faroudi. He is the chief executive and co-founder of one of the most interesting new entities on the industry scene right now, fan-controlled sports and entertainment. They've got a very different model as to how they look about staging competition and approaching fan engagement. So stay tuned for that conversation with Sarab, and then Chris and I will be back on the other side to break down the news of the week. Stay tuned. Very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Sarab Faroudi, co-founder and chief executive of fan-controlled sports and entertainment. The upstart entity initially burst on the industry scene early last year with the debut of fan-controlled football, an indoor American football league in which fans have an extensive amount of control with both on- and off-field decisions of the league and its teams, in essence creating something of a real-life video game. After a second season of fan-controlled football earlier this year and a $40 million fundraising, FCSE is now seeking to expand the concept to other sports, starting with the recent development of fan-controlled hoops. The four-on-four mode of basketball will debut in February 2023, and the company has enlisted former National Basketball Association star Mike Bibby as a senior strategist and head coach. Faroudi arrived to FCSC after a, ver- after a varied career background that has included ownership and operations in other indoor football leagues, digital marketing, website management, and software engineering. Sarah, welcome to the program. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. So, gave uh, obviously a brief synopsis of uh, where you're at and how you got here, but in terms of the inspiration to do this fan-controlled concept and have this entirely different spin on a professional sports entity. What was that inspiration? Where did that come from? I like to say that uh, this isn't my idea. This is every sports fan's idea, right? I mean, I think any sports fan out there, if you're passionate, you're yelling at the screen, you think you can call plays better, you wish you had some say in in personnel. Um, I think we're just the guys lucky enough to kind of put it into action and, and really give fans an opportunity to participate the way I think we all wish we could in, in the professional league. So uh, this has been kind of a an iterative process all the way back in, in 2014 when I was a minority owner in an arena football league team. It's kind of the genesis of, of where the idea came from, but we've really just been refining it uh, over the course of the last six or seven years to to get to this point where we've uh, put it into, process, uh, into practice. So Rob, starting with your football league and going a bit deeper there, what can you share with the audience about your performance and your success to date in terms of fan engagement, revenues, any other business metrics that you can share 
regarding the football league? Yeah, look, I think we've had some tremendous growth over two seasons. Uh, our first season last year, we started with four teams uh, and it was a six week season. Had some great uh, viewership and engagement uh, there, you know, tens of thousands of, of fans participating and, and calling plays and, and millions of fans watched online. And so kind of with that, we're able to raise a, a much bigger round of capital and expand the league. So we, you know, our second season was eight teams. It was a, a nine week season. We, uh, we expanded our distribution from, you know, season one was Twitch only. Season two, we added NBC LX and Peacock and the zone and, and Fubo sports. And, and I think really showed that there is a, there's an appetite for alternative forms of sports. And uh, especially from what we're doing, you know, I think the, the biggest thing for us is is the demo, right? Our, our average age of our fans, 25, uh, we're reaching a very young, very different viewer than traditional sports leagues, which are, you know, up in the 45s and 50s in terms of, of average viewer. So from my standpoint, I think that's probably the, the, the biggest one to hang our hat on. And again, second season, you know, millions of viewers, hundreds of thousands of of registered fans participating and, and making decisions across the league and the different teams. So now we've got fan-controlled hoops in the offing here, are going to start during the winter here. What can we expect to see when that starts play? And more fundamentally, how will that, besides the obvious difference between basketball and American football here, what will be the difference from what we've seen so far with fan-controlled football? We wanted to own a new format of the sport. I mean, similar to what we did in, in football, you know, we really changed the way that the format works. We got rid of kicking completely. Our games are one hour, right? These are short form interactive versions of traditional sports. We wanted to bring something similar to basketball. So there's lots of three on three half court leagues out there. There are lots of five on five full court leagues out there. Our league is actually going to be four on four full court. So playing on a high school size court, um, but giving the, these guys a lot more room. Uh, to spread out and really open up the offense. And then we're going to change a lot of the rules again, things like a three-point dunk. Fans want to see dunks. That's one of the things that's gone away, the big man uh, in traditional basketball. It's all it's all gone to, to layups and three-pointers. So we're going to bring back a three-point dunk. And we're going to let fans have some decision-making power during the game itself. So we're playing on a full LED court. Um, so the entire court, I mean, you can imagine the visuals here. It's like a, a real-life version of NBA Jam is the idea. So fans will be able to uh, choose different sections of the court, have an impact on scoring in real time, um, and and see that uh, kind of light up uh, as it happens. You mentioned some of the media partners for your football league. As you think about basketball, I'm sure you're still in the early stages of this, but what is your expectation in terms of media partners for this uh, this first season? Yeah, look, our vision of fan-controlled sports and entertainment was always multi-sport. This was never a vision of just fan-controlled football. The platform that we've built and designed was here to kind of power this uh, this unique uh, engagement for fans across multiple sports. We chose basketball because we wanted to be international. And so, you know, to, to answer that question, I think this has really opened up an international audience for us. I just spent a week in Singapore having meetings with a, a lot of uh, international you know, investors and, and distribution partners that are interested in carrying our content and being part of what we're building. So, you know, we're looking at kind of similar lineup to, to what we had previously for football, adding some more big names here domestically, and then opening up some really big audiences internationally, you know, looking at markets like Brazil and the Philippines and, and China as, uh, as some of the markets where we're going to have distribution and, and have a real following in terms of uh, this league and, and fans being able to participate. 
you mentioned your younger fan base before, and obviously th- this is a demographic that's got a lot of different options in front of them in terms of their time and attention. Outside of the the game periods, how are you sort of thinking about fan engagement? I know you've gotten into NFTs in a big way, but sort of broadly, how are you thinking about trying to engage with this audience on a more 24-7 type of basis? Yeah, look, I, I think you know my vision here for fan-controlled sports, if you think about traditional sports, and let's take NBA as an example, the NBA has outsourced, uh, for the most part, their, their digital strategy, right? NFTs and digital collectibles, they've outsourced that out to Dapper Labs with Top Shots. Uh, video games is take two. You look at, uh, you know, even kind of cardboard collectibles with Fanatics. Uh, they've taken kind of all of these pieces and with, you know, a license out to these, these businesses, there's multi-billion dollar businesses being built on the back of a license from an NBA or an NFL. You can take any of the big leagues, they're all the same. Our vision is actually to build those things in-house uh, and really provide fans an opportunity when they're not engaging in our real sports leagues that are that are live uh, engage in our in our digital properties, whether that's video games, whether that's digital collectibles, uh, and then rewarding fans in that ecosystem by you know giving them uh, that that 360 experience where the things that they do in our digital properties actually provide them more voting power, more access, and more control in the real league. Um, and so our our goal here is really to blend the, the physical and the digital um, and and give fans a way to engage with us uh, outside of game day just as much, maybe if not more than uh, than they are. Uh, during game day itself. Your capital raise was from Animoca Brands, Delphi Digital, obviously companies involved in the the metaverse, Web3, NFTs, some form of uh, or fashion of that. How does that play into some of the executions and and some of the initiatives that you get involved in as a league, particularly focus on Web3 and NFTs? I think we look at Web3 as a enabling platform and technology. I mean, you know, call it NFTs or call it digital collectibles. I mean, as a fan, what you want is for all of that to be under the hood, right? You just want a good user experience. And, and, and so, you know, whether or not we call it NFTs or, or Web3, our goal here is to create a really powerful uh, user engagement platform uh, where fans can, from a digital standpoint, own what they buy, right? And own what they create and, and have a have a real opportunity as value grows in our ecosystem for those early fans to actually have value there. I'm a, I'm a huge cardboard collector of sports cards myself. I've seen the value of that as I've participated um, in terms of collecting players and, and the growth in sports as, as a whole. And that's really, I think, what we're trying to enable with leveraging Web3 and lever- leveraging blockchain. Um, and so not necessarily, you know, this idea of like putting NFTs at the forefront of of the league or or of the experience, um, but really looking at it as a technology to uh, to provide fans uh, another way to engage and another way to own, you know, is, is a new new paradigm in in uh, in digital. So you've done this one capital raise here, but as you're certainly aware, it's it's a very fertile market right now. There's a lot of new money coming into sports and entertainment writ large, looking for a lot of new and emerging homes such as yours. What is that sort of ongoing conversation with current and potential investors like? Are you thinking about another raise? And you know, are, are the calls coming fast and furious right now? Yeah, there's a large uh, influx of uh, inbound calls when we announced our our, our last raise. I think we announced it in January. We closed it uh, end of last year. 
I think caught a lot of people's attention. And our second season, you know, quite honestly, with the success we've had, has really got people talking. So I mean, look, we're we're a startup. I'm running this as you know, me and my co-founders have raised venture-backed uh, startups in the mobile and gaming space. I think we're we're attacking sports the way we would attack a mobile or gaming startup, uh, which is product market fit. You know, we're building from the ground up. We're not trying to talk attack from the top down with hundreds of millions of dollars. We've We've seen too many times, you know, leagues come and go and they're no longer here that had hundreds of millions of dollars at their disposal. So with that said, I mean, we're a startup. We're, I'm always in fundraising mode. I've, I've been fundraising for the last 20 years of my life uh, to, to build companies and and uh, and have success. And so with the right partners and, and the right people around, uh, we, you know, we'll, we'll always uh, entertain uh, raising uh, some additional capital to expand the business. And look, it, it takes... We're not just ones and zeros, right? We're not just building a video game. We're not just building a, a mobile engagement platform. These are real leagues. These are real players on the court, some real uh, costs here on the production side. We've slimmed all of that down as much as we can. We play in one location and, and really have changed the cost structure and scalability of traditional sports, but it's still capital intensive compared to a kind of a pure digital play. And especially as we look at, you know, in moving into multiple sports, I mean, you know, hoops is next. We're looking at expanding into baseball and cricket uh, as our next two sports. So th- this is going to take you know capital to, to go do, and we want to find the right uh, the right capital, whether it's domestically or abroad. We want to put the right people around the table to help us build those leagues and, uh, and and bring new fans into into the ecosystem. Talking about the right people around the table, you have a number of prominent advisors, ex professional players, ex executives in the space. Can you talk about some of the folks that are helping you and, and bring that celebrity status, but also that real expertise about the games that that help you? Yeah, look, I think there's there we we've kind of attacked it from from two sides, right? We've got the the all-star, all pro players that have played at the highest level, Marshawn Lynch, Richard Sherman, you know, Austin Eckler, those types of guys, Joe Montana, right, that have done this at the highest level on the field that really kind of help us think through the game, the mechanics, you know, the, the things that, that will work from a football standpoint. And then at the executive level, investor level, we've built an incredible Rolodex of people that are both, you know, full-time employees, you know, Chris Pantoya, who I will point out, you know, before she worked here, she spent four years at the NBA working directly for Adam Silver, uh, leading global uh, mobile and direct-to-consumer. Greg Moore, who was a NCAA commissioner, literally left his commissioner post uh, to come join us to be the GM of of fan controlled hoops and our uh, head of uh, of legal affairs, and so you know these are the types of people that have built big leagues. Andy Dolich, front office legend uh, in sports for the last forty years, uh, has been a COO and, and president across you know MLB and, and NFL and uh, and everything in between. So you know we look at this as uh, as a kind of a coming together of of a lot of different worlds. You got startup guys that have built, you know, successful venture-backed companies from the ground up. We've got, you know, big-time sports execs that have helped build and run and grow the big leagues that that are out there, and have seen what works and what doesn't work, and and bring a lot of knowledge and, and experience out of that world. And then we've got the, the players that were on the field, right? And and you look at somebody like Michelle Roberts, right, who just joined us uh, for for fan-controlled hoops. She brings this really interesting dynamic. Part of what we want to do is empower our players. We want to give them ownership in the league. We want to give them a 
the ability to, to, to really, you know, grow with us in a different way than, than the other leagues have done. And so she brings this really unique uh, perspective on having sat on the player side, but really negotiated really closely with the leagues on what's important uh, for both. And so, uh, you know, we've, we've tried to continue to go out and, and bring the right people around the table to, to give us the best advice possible as we, as we put the, the pieces in place. So long-term, what does the exit strategy look like? What is sort of success 20 years down the road? Are you thinking that this ultimately gets acquired or, or what is sort of the, the long-term horizon here? I don't think you can build for acquisition, right? I think you've got to just build a good business and then people will come knocking if, uh, if you built a good business. My goal uh, over the next even five years is we want to run four leagues. Like we, we want fan-controlled sports to be a 24-7, 365 experience. You're going from league to league and having a, an impact, whether that's football, basketball, baseball, or cricket. You can take your profile with you as a fan and you can have your input on your favorite team in these sports and, and, and really participate in a level kind of unseen before in sports. Um, so not necessarily an exit strategy. We've created the business in a way that it gives us opportunities to exit in, in multiple different ways. Our holding company owns all of the leagues. The leagues own all of the teams that are you know, run on individual P&Ls. So we could potentially sell individual teams. We could potentially sell individual leagues or you know, we could potentially sell uh, or IPO the, the, the whole business. But not something I'm necessarily thinking about right now. I'm thinking about how we expand to the next league and continue to, to grow the business and, uh, and engage new fans in, into what we're building. Well, to that point, as you think about the shorter term, the next six to 12 months, if we were to get back together in a year, what are the most important accomplishments you need to create here over the next sort of six to 12 months? We want to have a, a big coming out party on, on hoops, right? I think the, the idea of being able to engage the international fan is a big reason why uh, we're making this move into hoops. We're taking on a, a big uh, expense and, and a big risk on playing on an all-LED floor, right? There's no league that's ever played on an all-LED floor for an entire season. There's been some tests here and there. I think FIBA just approved an LED court a couple of months ago. So I think it'll be we'll start seeing it a little bit more. But for sure, we're going to be the first league kind of doing this, uh, you know, across the entire season, especially creating these digital engagement elements. So, you know, we want to come out of this first season of hoops with some great data, some great engagement, some, you know, a large number of international fans uh, kind of bought into the fan controlled experience and then headed in, you know, we're going to season three of footballs right around the corner, April through June of next year. So, you know, we want to step up and level up again in what we're doing for season three of football and grow that audience and, and, and user base and, and revenue profile. Um, and then in the back half of next year, really focused on the digital experience. I mean, we want to launch our first video game. We want to bring a lot of the, the, the digital engagement opportunities for fans outside of game day uh, to the forefront. We're working on some really cool uh, avatar experiences and other things uh, that fans will be able to engage with our ecosystem. And so those are the types of things that we're going to be working on in the back half of next year. And then, you know, if we talked in a year, I think we'd be announcing our third sport at this time next year. And so what, which one that is, I don't know. I think we're going to make a decision here over the next four, four or six months on which direction we head. But it'll either be baseball or cricket is, is, where, we're, is where we're leaning. Well, clearly a lot happening in and around fan-controlled sports and entertainment. We'll continue to track that across all of the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank Rob Ferruti, their co-founder and chief executive, for spending this time with us. Well, it's a pleasure, guys. I appreciate the time. Thanks.
We are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Sarab Fruity again from Fan Controlled Sports and Entertainment for spending that time with us. And turning our attention now to news of the week here, you know, active listeners of the podcast know we've been talking about athlete investment and uh, sort of this new realm that we've been in for some time, really, in terms of folks like Kevin Durant and LeBron James and Tom Brady and sort of fill in the blank, uh, getting involved uh, in a variety of business ventures and using their celebrity in lots of interesting ways. We had another big week on that, just a lot of different things sort of uh, sort of bubbling up on the scene and sort of really continuing that cadence here. Uh, and among the individual uh, investments, uh, we've got uh, Brady himself and Kim Kleisters, the uh, Tennis Hall of Famer, getting involved with Major League Pickleball, following the likes of of LeBron James and Drew Brees and others in that fast-growing sport. A number of NBA stars, including Durant and Lonzo Ball and a number of others getting involved in a virtual reality uh, startup called Gym Class. We've got Juju Smith-Schuster, uh, the uh, NFL star wide receiver for the Chiefs, getting involved uh, in uh, world champion gaming, uh, an esports uh, venture, a number of others. Uh, and this cadence really sort of just continues to go along here. And uh, Really interesting stuff here that it's it's you know far beyond uh, sort of the mom and pop restaurant thing we you know would see decades ago, you know well beyond even some you know team ownership and things like LeBron James and what we talked about with his stated interest in having an NBA franchise in Las Vegas here that these business ventures are just going in a lot of different and interesting directions and don't necessarily have to be some huge multi million dollar thing either. Yeah, well, look, I think there's some macro things that have happened over the last five to 10 years that are driving this. One, athletes are making a lot more money in general, at least in the, in, the, in the big leagues, the big four. Secondly, social media is really now commonplace where these athletes are able to leverage their fandom and, and drive value and drive communication, which didn't really exist in the same way sort of 10, at least 10 or 15 years ago. But also now you have all of these new alternative sports and high growth businesses where these athletes can really add a lot of value, not only with their capital, but by lending credibility to these ventures, lending their social followings, bringing some of their you know fellow players along. So there's a lot more value that can be added in some of these ventures than some of the traditional things, as you mentioned, that athletes invested in. Yeah. And you make a great point about some of these uh, startups and emerging ventures that it's really kind of almost flipped on its head to a certain extent where it's for the for a lot of these stars, it's really a buyer's market that these entities need a LeBron James or a Tom Brady, certainly way more than vice versa. And they can really pick their spots as to what makes sense, what looks interesting and what could actually be a meaningful return. Yeah. And it's it's really beyond an endorsement, because I think what athletes found in some ways with an endorsement deal is you couldn't get paid a lot of cash up front by some of these smaller entities. But why not take equity? And if the, if the thing really succeeds, then you're able to really benefit from it. Shaq was one of the early proponents yep. of that, where he leveraged his social media platforms to gain equity in a number of companies and did quite well. And so I think more and more athletes have seen that playbook. They're putting a little skin in the game in terms of their capital, but I'm sure they're they're generating outsized returns if these businesses succeed. Yeah. And what also is really striking to me is that it, it goes well beyond just sort of some kind of baseline professional interest or, you know, interest in a financial return, that there's a real sort of cause attached to a lot of these things that if you talk to a 
Juju Smith-Schuster. He's really into esports, and he really, you know, thinks this whole sort of fantasy component of uh, esports that WCF has uh, put together, you know, can really change the game in that space. And you talk to some of these pickleball investors; they're they're all in on this, and it sort of almost sort of is going beyond any sort of more intellectual type of investment into something that they really believe fully hearted. Yeah, passion is important. Uh, is an important part of these investments. You see, a lot of the investments that Kevin Durant has made have been part of the collectibles space. So he was a big proponent of that. He's invested in a lot of things, you know, more generally in tech. Yep. But you're right. I think having some passion or some connection to the product is really important. That obviously makes sense from an investment standpoint, but it also brings really more credibility when that star goes out and says to his fans or her fans, "Hey, you should be excited about this because I am legitimately." Yeah. And you sort of look down the road here on this a little bit. And, you know, I, I referenced before LeBron James and his team ownership interests. And, and certainly, you know, we've had others like Derek Jeter go down this road as well. But, you know, where I'm going with this is that, you know, we talked in recent weeks about a number of these new PE firms and a lot of this new institutional money coming into the space. You could very easily see, you know, large scale institutional money being led by athletes and really sort of taking this to a whole other level in the years to come. Yeah, there have been some attempts, Eric, to kind of aggregate athlete capital in various ways or to attach athletes to funds. But I agree that this really could take on a whole new dimension with, the, again, the level of capital these, these athletes are making, but also the level of sophistication that they're approaching this, this kind of opportunity, I think really sinks even more now with growth equity and private equity. So I do think you'll see some of those tie-ups. And certainly, and again, much more than an endorsement thing that you look at a lot of these guys that they've studied this and and really you know been actively involved, that this is much, again, much more than a sort of passive involvement that a, a lot of these men and women are very sharp and bring a lot to the table themselves from an operational perspective. Yeah, I think especially those kind of, you know, competitive dynamics and that competitive approach that is really true in all of athletics, when you bring that expertise and that competitive function into particularly some of these new sports, I think it can be very helpful. Tom Brady Engine was talking about that. Preparation. In, yeah, Tom Tom Brady was talking about that in the context of pickleball. I mean, he wants to go and have a winning team, and he wants to bring some of the same discipline and some of the same preparation that he brings to football into his organization. So we'll see how successful that is, but I think it has good prospects. So many more realms of this to come yet, uh, you know, really interesting, and we'll uh, obviously be continuing to track that. But shifting gears to another development here in recent days, uh, you know, we talked a lot in the past about the college football playoff and how that's expanding from four teams to 12 and all of the schisms happening in college sports in the United States as the weeks and months uh, transpire here. We've got a potentially uh, meaningful development uh, now bubbling up in college basketball, both on the men's and women's side, where the Atlantic Coast Conference and their commissioner, Jim Phillips, this is uh, a person in an entity who have already been advocating for an expansion of these tournaments beyond the current 68 team fields. And as college basketball is now uh, gearing up for the 22-23 season, they're banging this drum again that these tournaments need to expand and perhaps meaningfully beyond the 68 number. And, you know, perhaps the time is really right here that everything is changing now in college sports between realignment and NIL and media redefinition and so forth, that there could arguably be no better time to think about 
expanding March Madness, one of those great events on the North American sports calendar than right now. Yeah, well, there are a lot of other views on that. Also, Eric, there are people who say, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it or whatever that phrase is. And And I would say that among the various challenges or issues or problems in college sports, March Madness did not appear to be one of those problems. In fact, it seemed to be one of those huge success formulas. And so I do wonder how much traction this idea will get, given all of the other cleanup that needs to be done with respect to NIL, figuring out what the college football playoffs really look like, getting some new executives installed in some of these roles like the NCAA president seat. So I am more skeptical that this will make it to the top of the agenda, but you never know. It's crazy times in college sports. Your point is well taken that this this is not a pain point. This is not a problematic area, although it's a pain point in the sense that those of us who you know are alums of mid-major schools and have been you know left out on selection Sunday, that's a pain point, and that's part of what's being contemplated here. But within the sort of macro landscape that you're describing here compared to some of these other issues and indeed is is not the foremost pain point i think this is more of an approach of this is you know if if some is good more is better kind of thing and i think that's sort of the uh, same approach of uh, what's governing the cfp expansion right now yeah i mean look i think that in my view the cfp you know from going from four teams to 12 teams is probably additive brings more excitement into the the tournament overall or into that process. I think some of the downsides of expanding March Madness would be you might make the games leading up to March Madness a lot less relevant because so many more teams get in. You might make the tournament itself sort of harder to follow because you've got a lot of other games. And again, each game you know, may, may not garner the same kind of attention. You might, uh, uh, you know, whether we care about this or not, you know, the NIT tournament, what happens to that, which tends right. to be the second tournament. So there's there's pros and cons to all of these things. I appreciate uh, having uh, gone to a school, Northwestern, which didn't make the big dance all that often. In fact, I think only made it once. Be nice if more schools were in. But on the other hand, this is a very successful formula with March Madness. And I think the uh, colleges should probably focus on fixing the football playoffs before they get into the weeds on this one. Yeah, you raise an interesting point. Even Jim Phillips from the ACC himself acknowledged that there were a lot of logistical issues with this because, you know, yes, you sort of look at this that, hey, going from 68, 80 was a number that was thrown out there. You know, if you if you go one full round beyond, then you're at, you know, 136 or whatever the number is that, you know, there's various numbers that have been thrown out there. But as soon as you start to peel that onion, it's a matter of scheduling and media slotting. And how does this work with CBS and Turner and the domestic rights? And how do you renegotiate that? And then again, from staging of the games, they've got a, you know, really, you know, successful situation now with the first four in Dayton, you know, what you're ostensibly talking about here is doing like, potentially two or three other Dayton's and how does that work? And can you keep it within a time frame of the schedule and, you know, not adversely impact the overall student athlete experience. Yeah. And, you know, again, Phillips himself acknowledged that there were a lot of logistical hurdles here that would have to be cleared. But again, under the proviso of if you're even going to talk about this, now is the time. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it will be part of the conversation. I, I think you need to think about how it also affects these conference tournaments and championships, which I think have become even more important in recent years and even more exciting because in some cases, those conference uh, championships 
may determine who gets in, who doesn't, what the seating right. looks like. And so that's become a nice event, uh, set of events unto itself. So again, weighing all of these things, again, I think if if it's contemplated, I think it will be for after the, the football uh, changes take place. But again, everything, as you say, is on the table and there'll be new leadership at the NCAA yep. at some point here soon. And if that person advocates for it, you know, we very well could see a very serious look at it. Well, much more to come on that front, particularly as we get deeper into the upcoming college basketball season. But shifting our attention now to women's soccer, and this is something we've been discussing off and on here in recent weeks, you know, NWSL, they're you know, in many ways, uh, achieving a lot of gains. They're looking at expansion. They've got a new commissioner with Jessica Berman, who's a, achieving a lot of business gains. But they're still in the midst of a really troubling sexual abuse scandal that predates uh, the arrival earlier this year of Jessica Berman. But as more and more data comes out, and we've had an extensive report that the league commissioned and was independently put together that detailed that within several franchises, a, a number of troubling abuse situations have occurred. And now we've got a situation in multiple markets, particularly with the Chicago Red Stars and the Portland Thorns, some potential uh, ownership changes here, uh, you know, along the lines of, uh, you know, what we've been talking about in the NBA with the Phoenix Suns and Robert Sarver. And with the Red Stars, uh, we've got a uh, open call among players and fans for that club owner, Arnim Whistler, to sell the team. And in Portland, Merritt Paulson, who uh, has that team as well as MLS's uh, Portland Timbers, he has removed himself from operation of those franchises. And we have an open question as to whether that will ultimately lead to a sale or of one or both of those franchises. So very bumpy road right now for the NWSL and, you know, troubling first and foremost, obviously for the victims of these abuse situations, but also from a business perspective, something that could really sort of uh big bump in the road of a lot of the gains that have been happening within that league and women's sports broadly. Yeah, it seems like in both markets, Chicago and Portland, ownership uh, would like to stay there, but not necessarily running the teams day to day. And we'll see if that's enough for the various constituents of, of those teams, which include, first and foremost, the players, the fans, the sponsors, the media partners, the leagues that they're part of. And it right now appears to be an open question. There certainly are calls in both cities among certain groups to have these owners sell the teams, whether that's the ultimate result or not, we don't know. What I would say also, Eric, though, is that from some player comments that I've seen out there, you know, while the players, for the most part, want change, they don't necessarily want fans to stop showing up. They right. don't necessarily want sponsors to stop spending because all of that stuff hurts the players. So this is a right. tricky situation, and it will really depend upon, again, how events unfold, like in the Sarver case, where very quickly – you know, there, there was just a, a, a ton of resistance from the constituents. We'll see how these two situations play out. Yeah. And having almost this sort of absentee ownership model, at least what's sort of being contemplated in Paulson, where he owns the team and but is it involved and he's got day to day management folks who report to who and how. Again, if you're really trying to sort of build not just a business, but a sort of groundswell of of a cause and mission around these clubs and around the sport. That just seems to be a very difficult situation that if you're going to have this sort of almost absentee ownership model. Yeah, it it, it doesn't seem all that sustainable, Eric. But I it, again, it seems to me that 
in some of these situations, the owners would like to step away. They would like to let the uh, executives run the team day to day. And and who knows, maybe that leaves the door open after some period of time for the owners to come back and have a more visible role. And But again, I think right now there seems to be a lot of, at least among the players and some of the key constituents of you, that really the slate needs to be cleaned and, and we need to have you know new ownership. So we'll see if that ends up uh, coming to pass. And part of the problem here is that we may not even necessarily have hit sort of rock bottom in terms of the full depth and scope of the transgressions that have occurred. You know, we had this independent report and then even following that, there have been some, you know, further reports sort of coming out and further allegations of additional incidents that have occurred here. So I think part of this sort of absentee model is just trying to take a beat and get everybody involved to get their arms around exactly the depth and scope of what has occurred. Yeah, I understand, Eric, that the league and the Players Association are also doing their own investigation, Correct. which results will be, I'm sure, at some point released. And so this is one of those situations where there was a, a lot of discussion about this when Lisa Baird resigned. There's now this report. There's going to be the next report. And so instead of being able to really fully contemplate and understand the situation and make the changes, this is happening over a number of different discussions and months and years, which I think, you know, is a very difficult thing to handle, especially for someone like Jessica Berman coming into this uh, really from the outside and, and having to to kind of navigate these waters. It is very difficult to navigate, though. You know, one sort of, you know, glass half full way of looking at this, though, is that she's won a lot of early plaudits for what she's done to build this business. But you know, also just to the way she's gone about sort of the level of transparency and working so arm in arm with the players. And this is one of those situations that that is obviously the key consistency that the league has to be fully arm in arm with here. And so, you know, if this has got to happen and, and this is as bad as it is, that is one thing that you can at least point your finger to that's, you know, that there is a you know, clear sense of alignment on getting to the full scope of what has happened and doing so and, and being transparent with all the relevant constituencies. And, and there also appears to be a lot of fan support, sponsor support for the players and really appreciating the challenges that they've gone through. And one example is Alaska Airlines, which was a Portland sponsor kind of pulled the money from the team, but then gave that money to the NWSL Players Association. Right. So I think there is a real appetite among the various parts of this ecosystem to get behind the players and support them. And so I think that's uh, hopefully will carry the day in terms of the economics of this league overall. That's a great point. And that's a, you know, that's a, you know, really interesting and nuanced approach by a brand because usually when these sort of situations go, you know, the brands don't want to be involved and they just sort of run for cover here. But to do that in such a sort of more thoughtful and nuanced way, you know, something we don't necessarily see a lot of. And I think, Eric, despite these challenges, there really is tremendous momentum in the NWS NWSL. We see the, the LA franchise enjoying uh, tremendous success. We saw the, the price that was paid for the Washington franchise. Right. There's demand and interest in a Bay Area franchise. There, there's a lot of great things happening. So even though there's there's certainly some negative history here that needs to be addressed, I think the support for this league is going to continue to accelerate. So that is a, a ray of sunlight in a, in, a, in a very cloudy situation. Yeah. And 
your points are all very well taken and a lot of other folks in the space openly rooting for them and supporting them you know whether it be MLS or WNBA or you know sort of pick an organization here that there there is a lot of high level support from elsewhere in the industry yeah and again as you mentioned other league sponsors we'll see what happens with their next media rights deal so again i think we're we still have some probably difficult news to absorb here when the league and, and the Players Association report comes out, but then hopefully the appropriate changes are made and, and we move forward in, in a way that's uh, that that's good for everyone. Well, much more to come on that front here, but as we come towards the end of another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we'd like to take a bit of a look ahead in this space and see what else is catching our eye. And Chris, I will start with you. Eric, I am looking ahead to the uh, NFL owners meeting, which is happening this this week in New York. There will be some, I assume, interesting agenda items, including you know what's going on with Sunday Ticket, which I expect will be completed the new deal sometime in the next sort of sixty to ninety days. So we'll see if some news comes out about that. Obviously, there's been a lot of news about the Washington yep. uh, situation. Does not appear like there's a formal agenda item. On, on Washington, but having been at a lot of league meetings during my tenure at, at the NFL, there are always sidebar conversations, always informal discussions. And I assume that uh, you know, Washington will be uh, front and center in some of those. Yeah, it's interesting because there's also a lot of on-field issues that need to be sort of wrestled with as well. You know, there was such momentum for the NFL going into this new season, but just in the last couple, three weeks, so much conversation around the concussion protocols, you know, what constitutes a roughing the passer, the penalty, uh, Tom Brady talking about so much bad football being played out there. And certainly there's a lot of games out there that would support that notion and just, uh, you know, just seems like there's been a, a bit of a turn just in the last two, three weeks in terms of how people are sort of feeling about what they see on the field. Yeah, I do think there are ups and downs in that. And I think the league is and, and the Players Association are taking steps to address the concussion issue. Yep. There will always be, you know, bad calls and, and people will talk about them and rule changes and things of that nature. I think bigger picture, you know, these media rights, what's going on internationally, and then these issues that kind of come up around particular teams, in this case, Washington, will be the things that probably longer term will be most important. But ultimately, this is about a product on the field, and it has gotten a, a few questions raised in the last few weeks. So I do assume they'll talk about that as well. Yeah. And from my standpoint, we talked about the uh, MLB playoffs at the at the outset here. And as those playoffs continue and we get into the World Series, you know, fans are going to be uh, hearing for the first time from a new league sponsor, Charlotte's Web. Uh, uh, Major League Baseball has entered uh, the CBD uh consumer cannabidiol's uh, sponsorship realm and did a CBD deal with a uh, Colorado-based company. This is the first time any of the major North American stick and ball leagues have done this. There have been a number of other entities, UFC, Premier Lacrosse League, uh, some NWSL teams and the like that have entered this sponsorship space. But this is the first time that one of those top tier entities have done a deal like this. And they've got big plans that uh, you know, a lot of activation, including a World Series sweepstakes. There's co uh, co branded merchandise where the league logo is on uh, CBD packages, and uh, they've got big plans here. And this could be a situation where they've sort of made the the water safe for the NHL or uh, NBA or some of these other entities to also get involved. That's exactly what I was going to say, Eric. Once the dam is broken, 
uh, everybody wants to come to the party. And so if there's money to be made and it now appears like, you know, some of these sponsorships are normalized and, and are, are, are okay, uh, you'll, you'll see a lot more demand among teams and leagues to do them. Yeah. And, and what's really interesting about this is how much uh, sort of effort went out on the front end of this to have a uh, product that was uh, certified safe by uh, some outside entities. This The products that uh, Charlotte's Web sells are actually uh, comport with the uh, collective bargaining agreement with the players. So the players themselves can ingest these uh, for their own health and wellness if they so choose. And so sort of doing all of that front end work to sort of check all, the, all those boxes. Really interesting. Yeah, that's important, Eric. All of these new categories bring with them, and I say all these new, some of the more recent ones bring with them certainly gambling. Pro, pros and cons, betting, crypto, CBD. So there is big money in these emerging areas, but they all have to be done carefully because there are downsides if they're not done well. And I think the leagues are trying to be as prudent as they can on that. So potentially much more to come on that front, particularly among the top tier entities. But uh, that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. And for Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.